0: Open your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4. We are continuing in a message that we began a week ago entitled Christian Unity, an Elusive Jewel. Christian Unity, an Elusive Jewel. As you're turning there, let me take you back figuratively in a time machine to the year 1969. 1969. The year 1969, the campuses of this country were aflame with anti-war protests. Southeast Asia was literally aflame as the Vietnam War was raging. The difficulties on the college campuses would escalate to a year later in May of 1970, where four students were shot and killed by the Ohio National Guard in a violent confrontation over anti-war protests. It was a very, very difficult and turbulent time in the history of our nation. In 1969, Jesse Colin Young of the pop group The Youngbloods re-recorded and released A song originally written a number of years before, but a song entitled Get Together, the refrain of which became somewhat symbolic of the entire period of the Vietnam War. The refrain of that particular song goes like this. I won't sing it to you. (laughs) But it says, come on, people now, smile on your brother Everyone get together and try to love one another right now. Those of you that are age 60 and above can probably now sing it in your head. It's always dangerous to do that, you know. Will you hear another thing I say? That sentiment... That sentiment, although secular in origin, kind of expresses really much of the religious thinking on the topic of Christian unity. In 1910, 1910, 1,355 delegates met together in Edinburgh, Scotland, For the purpose of determining how to cooperate in the area of world missions. This gathering, this get together, this conference was interrupted by two world wars before finally in 1948 an organization known as the World Council of Churches was formed out of that original Edinburgh conference. The World Council of Churches was formed, whose motto was, Doctrine Divides, but Service Unites. In order to get together in unity, they found they had to minimalize doctrine. And so along the way, they jettisoned doctrines like the virgin birth, the blood atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection, and the inerrancy of the scriptures. In other words, they jettisoned Christianity in order to achieve their temporal unity. A more recent example of the quest for unity at the expense of doctrine was displayed in 1964, excuse me, 1994, 1994, in a document entitled Evangelicals and Catholics Together. This document was drafted by Charles Coulson and Father Richard John Newhouse, formerly a Lutheran pastor turned Catholic priest. In that document, they make the following statement, and I quote, All who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ. Evangelicals and Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ. Close the quote. With a stroke of the pen, they swept away the entire Reformation. This Sunday, by the way, is what's known as Reformation Sunday. Sunday. 500 years ago, on the 31st of October in the year 1517, Martin Luther nailed to what in effect was the church community bulletin board a list of grievances, points of discussion with the Catholic Church, he himself being a Catholic priest. They were originally posted in Latin because that was the language of scholarship, and these were meant to be debated at the academic and scholarly level. With the invention of the printing press, they were quickly translated first into German and then other languages and distributed all over Europe. It's widely credited as launching the Protestant Reformation. Here we are 500 years later, deeply beholding. To those who did not put unity, a temporal surface unity, the expense of the gospel. So as we have a 500th year anniversary, let us be thankful to those that have gone before and paid in some cases a dear and terrible price up to and including their own blood. That you're sitting here this morning and you have a copy of the word of God in your own language, English. People died to make that possible. There is a lot of misunderstanding, beloved, swirling around the topic of Christian unity. And over these weeks, I hope to be able to bring a measure of clarity to to this entire discussion. These studies spring out of our exposition of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We're organizing the study in a Q&A format. We're formally looking at verses 1 through 16 of here, chapter 4. The problem becomes is it's so big and so encompassing Uh, with such important concepts that it's not possible to put it all together and answer all of the questions, or at least it's not easy to do it in a more traditional, homiletical fashion. And so I've settled for the Q&A format. We began last week, and we asked and answered a number of questions, and we did so kind of laying foundations, foundations for the study as we continue to go on. So this week, what I want to do, we weren't able to finish the questions from last week, so I'm going to finish those questions that are part of the foundation and then move forward, by the grace of God, into verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4 here in Ephesians. Okay, so that's the plan. I already heard somebody who doesn't believe it's possible. Okay? There's always a scoffer in every crowd. I hope to prove him wrong. So here we go. Okay, and I'll just quickly catch you up to speed, okay? Review the questions really quickly. First question, last week, foundational, we asked, what is unity? That was our first question, what is unity? And basically what we said is that unity is fundamentally, first and foremost, a a spiritual reality brought about as a result of the one new man that Paul had been hammering away on in chapter 2, and in particular, verse 15. Jew, Gentile, brought together as the one new man. This is what it means to be in Christian unity, first and foremost. It is is not a visible oneness. It It is not a membership or an attachment to a various organization or some sort of temporal allegiances. First and foremost, the scripture talks about unity in the sense that we are part of this one new man second question we asked was what is the source of this unity if it's a spiritual reality what is the source of it the source of the spiritual reality is the very spirit of god himself ephesians chapter 12 verse 13 where paul tells the church there at corinth who is struggling with their 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 external temporal unity he reminds them that they were placed into the one body of christ and the baptism of the spirit Even here in chapter 4 and verse 3 of Ephesians, we are told that it is the unity of the Spirit. It is the unity of the Spirit. And so what is the source of of unity? It is the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God who was given in a very unique way in ministry at Pentecost with the birth of the church and the fulfillment of Jesus' high priestly prayer of John 17, where he prays, may they be one as we are one. That prayer was answered that prayer was answered in the giving of the Spirit and the birth of the church, the formation of the one new man. Third question we looked at last week is why is unity so important? Why is the external, and maybe I should ask the question that way, but why is the external display of unity so important? And the answer to the question is, is because unity, external unity, demonstrates the power of the gospel. It demonstrates the power of the gospel. It is the changed life. It is the, the bringing together of people drawn from every tribe, trunk, people and nation brought together in the one new man that is accomplished based on the atonement of Christ and the work of the spirit that displays the power of the gospel to bring you and I together because on a human level, there are many, many things that would separate us and keep us apart. It is the gospel that brings us together. So that's why unity is so so important. And a lack of unity demonstrates a worldliness and a and an unbelief, a carnality, even Paul would say, and that is that sin divides. Sin always divides. Because sin is essentially self-focused. And so to be caught in sin, to be to be involved in sin, even my sin spilling onto other people divides. It never unites. It is the gospel that unites, sin divides. That led us to our fourth and final question that we addressed last week, and that is simply, is unity primarily a local issue? Is unity primarily a local issue? And how we answer that question is uh, we spoke of the, what's called by theologians the universal church. In other words, that we share, all Christians of all ages and all places share this common unity in the Spirit. There's only one church. And so we were baptized into that church, making us brothers and sisters in Christ, the children of God. And so we have siblings, uh, most of whom we will never meet, not until we are gathered together in Christ's coming kingdom. So first and foremost, unity is the sense of this universal church. However, what we quickly noted was that the predominant uh, theme of the New Testament epistles is not the universal church. In fact, by way of first interpretation, you would do really well whenever you read a passage about the church and the unity of the church and those kinds of things is to think first about local church and see if you can make the passage work in a local church context. And if you can't, then retreat to the concept that he must be talking about a universal church because the New Testament is written to local congregations addressing local temporal kinds of issues. And so that is, for the most part, Christian unity addressed in the New Testament is speaking about local, visible unity in a local church. Notice again here, verse 3, chapter 4, Paul says to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Not create it, but preserve it. But to preserve it. And so the words he's addressing here are about preserving This local unity, okay, and as he talks about patience and those kinds of things, it's obviously local, okay? You can only be patient with people who are right next to you and are irritating you, okay? You don't have to be patient with people on the other side of the world. You got to be patient with the person sitting about 12 inches away from you in the pew, okay? That's the one you got to be patient about. Okay, so fifth, here we go, new material, fifth question. Can Christians strongly disagree and still have unity? Can Christians strongly disagree and still have unity? Short answer, yes. Short answer, yes. We have some examples uh, drawn from the New Testament. We have Paul rebuking Peter in Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11 and following. Okay, I would consider that to be a strong disagreement, right? Paul's rebuking Peter. And we also have the, the account in Acts 15 of the very difficult separation between Paul and Barnabas. It's, it says there there was a you know, very sharp words spoken. And so there's strong, strong disagreement. And yet there's still unity. And we have beyond that the illustration, I think, of marriage. Okay? I think marriage provides a great illustration for all of this. And that is that a husband and wife can strongly disagree with one another. And yet they are still united. They are not, by virtue of their disagreements, somehow no longer united, right? They remain one flesh. They remain one flesh. So strong disagreements uh, can exist. They do exist. And they do not destroy unity. However... The question that becomes is how do we conduct ourselves in these strong disagreements? Because how we conduct ourselves in the strong disagreements can have a great effect on the the observable unity of a local congregation. In other words, do we value and understand Christian unity such that we will restrain our mouth? Will we restrain our thoughts so that we will not think and say, things that are contrary to the unity that is ours as members of the one new man. Maybe I can say it this way. You can sharply disagree with another believer. They are still your brother. They are not your enemy. They are not your enemy. They remain your brother. Okay, so we never want to lose sight of the reality that no matter how sharp the disagreement might be, We are still brothers and sisters in Christ and need to treat each other accordingly. Question number six. Question number six. Are there limits on unity? Are there any limits on unity? Answer, no and yes. No and yes. No, in the sense of the spiritual reality, right? We are one. We are one. That is accomplished by the the atonement of Christ and applied by the Spirit. So that is a reality. We don't create it. It exists. We are called to preserve it. But yes, there are limits in the sense of, of how closely we can express our organizational unity in terms of joint ministry efforts and regular and close fellowship activities, there are some limits. Here at Foothill, uh, a few years back, uh, the elders developed what we call the partnership grid. The partnership grid. And uh, this document that was created with a fair amount of work and prayer was designed to try to guide the elders in evaluating the multitude of ministry opportunities and requests for our corporate participation in all kinds of various ministry endeavors. And we needed something to guide us through the process so that we could approach, uh, try to approach each request with a, with a methodical way to evaluate it rather than just, well, you know, that sounds like a good idea. You know, let's say the yes to that and yes to that and, and so forth. So, the partnership grid was developed. The determining factor in the partnership grid was this. How closely does the particular group or organization that's requesting partnership together adhere to the our understanding of the scriptures? Okay? That was the main grid. That was the strainer, the sifter, the colander through which the requests are passed. How closely are we aligned in how we understand the word of God? pastoral rule of thumb. Hang on to this one. Okay? Rule of thumb, you should be in agreement on any doctrine that significantly affects how you do ministry. You should be in agreement on any doctrine that significantly affects how you do ministry. Okay? That's just sort of a a wisdom principle. So, various areas and I listed them for you in if you have the notes, various areas where Uh, Through the years, certain limits have been uh, applied, uh, and prayerfully applied, to be sure. But I'll just run through them quick. I don't want to burn up a lot of time on this, but let me just kind of run through them quickly and just sort of remind you. So so one area, in terms of of limits, are local church membership. There are limits on local church church membership. In other words, we have a doctrinal statement, and Adherence to the doctrinal statement, agreement with the doctrinal statement is, is a requirement of membership here in this local congregation. Now, obviously, there are tons of questions about that, not the least of which is how comprehensive should the doctrinal statement be, and I don't want to deal with that this morning from here, okay? But the doctrinal statement provides an external limit. Mission agencies, mission agencies, uh, not all mission agencies are the same. And so as we evaluate mission agencies with which to partner, the question that, that um, sort of sifts it all through for us is, what is their view of and commitment to the Bible? How do, they view the, how do they view the Word of God, not just what they say in their writings, but how do they practically live out their commitment to the Scriptures? The whole area of church planting, the same thing. What sort of church is being planted will determine what level of involvement, if any, that, that corporately here, institutionally, if I can say it that way, we want to have with them. You can know, have the whole issue of conferences and workshops. Okay, Can we sponsor this conference, that conference? Can we, can we advocate this workshop or that workshop? And, and you know these things are coming at you all the time, and the answer is what's being taught and by whom? What's being taught and by whom? What is being addressed in the conference? We may not have agreement in other areas, but if we're in agreement in this area, then we can go ahead. We, not, not just last week, we uh, hosted a parenting conference. We do not agree with every single thing that is taught and advocated by the, by the fellow who is teaching that conference. But in that area, we are in agreement and sufficient enough agreement to host it. Bible colleges and seminaries. What Bible colleges and seminaries do we recommend? Question. How do they teach the scriptures? What's their view of the word of God? And is it materially different than our own? Then you get into the whole thing about community events. Okay, how about joint Christmas Easter services? How about National Day of Prayer? And, you know, on and on it goes. Or you get into the realm of social action. How about care for the poor? How about the pro-life movement? How about political action committees? How about policy statements and things like that? What's our limit? We do have limits, and and we often are are reticent to be involved in these things. And the reason is, is because we perceive that a lot of confusion can arise in people's minds by involvement in areas with people whose doctrine is significantly different than our own. So maybe one more thing to say on all of this, okay? One more thing. And here it is. Uh, Foothill, there are things that Foothill cannot do as, a, as an organization that you would be free in your own conscience to do as an individual. So Foothill's um, limits on external unity, we're not trying to say that they are your limits. Okay? You need to go before the Lord in these things yourself, and you may find that you can participate in certain things that we corporately decline to participate in, okay? So we're not saying that just because we don't do it corporately, you can't do it at all. Be wise, so be wise. All right, number seven. Number seven, how do we cultivate unity in our local church? How do we cultivate unity in our local church? Now, from this point forward, I'm going to be talking about local church unity. Okay? Unless I note it otherwise. I'm not talking about the universal church anymore. You know, I'm talking about local church unity. So we don't establish it, right? That's the Spirit's role, verse 3. We don't establish it, but we do have an essential role to play in cultivating it. In cultivating unity. And verses 2 and 3 here of Ephesians chapter 4. Provides uh, three means for you and I individually to cultivate unity here at Foothill. And these three means are simply this right attitudes, right actions, and rigorous effort. Okay, right attitudes, right actions, rigorous effort. These are the means by which you and I, this is a this is a joint effort here, cultivate unity here in this local congregation. So let's begin with the right attitudes. And I want you to notice as we begin here that that Paul is is imploring the believers here to to the kind of attitudes that are really essential to Christianity. This is not this is not Christianity one oh two, this is Christianity one oh one. This is basic stuff. This is what it means to be a Christian. So he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he begins first with right attitudes, and the first attitude that he addresses is humility. He addresses the attitude of humility. Now, the, the, the Greek word translated humility here uh, in, uh, in English uh, means literally lowliness of mind. Okay? It means lowliness of mind. And it's, a, and it's a, actually a rather rare word in secular Greek. Uh, and when it does appear, it appears in a very derogatory way. It's used to, to speak of, of a cowards or weaklings. Okay, so in, in, from, a, from a secular Greek of that period, to, to speak about humility was to, to speak derogatorily of someone, to call them essentially a coward or a weakling. Interestingly, I think, is that we as a culture abhor humility just as much as the ancients did. I don't think we're really very far off at all. From our nation's highest office, to our sports and entertainment celebrities, to the very bumper stickers on our minivans that proclaim our child's brilliance, okay. we as a culture embody the language of Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. But for the Christian... For the Christian, humility is a virtue. It's not something to be abhorred. It's something to be desired, something to be pursued. It is a virtue, and it is a result of thinking rightly about ourselves in relation to God. In other words, he is the creator. You are the creation. Someone once said God's favorite doctrine is sovereignty. And they said if you were God, it would be your favorite doctrine too. God is God and we are not. And when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of humility. It's essential in the terms of of unity that we humble ourselves, that that we with all humility, Paul says here, approach unity and our very inclusion in the body of Christ. I mean, don't forget, right, in chapter 1, you are a follower of Christ today, if that's true of you, because God acted first. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He set his love upon you. You did not choose him. It initiates with God. We respond, it's always that way. And so a clear understanding of that promotes humility, right? The doctrine of election is the ultimate pride killer. The ultimate pride killer. Now, Paul, again, along with humility here, under right attitudes, he he calls for gentleness. You see it? With all humility and gentleness. And and this word, uh, gentleness, is is, um, similar in meaning to humility as the idea of mildness or as opposed to roughness. The idea of mildness. And uh, in, uh, in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, it is spoken of, gentleness is spoken of as a fruit of the Spirit. It is the product of the Spirit's work in our life to make us mild, to make us gentle. Again, uh, not to confuse gentleness uh, with weakness. The, the, the word is used here in the Greek to, to refer to a stallion, a strong stallion, but one who is under control. That is one that is gentle, gentle or sometimes translated meek. Now, gentleness implies the exercise of self-control, uh, exhibits a conscious choice not to use our power for the purpose of retaliation. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew eleven twenty-nine refers to himself as gentle and humble of heart, right? And Jesus himself was anything but a weakling. Anything but a weakling. Notice Paul says, with all humility and gentleness. This adjective, all, it modifies both humility and gentleness in it, and it communicates the idea of to the greatest or the fullest or the highest degree. So with the greatest level of humility and gentleness, that's the right attitude that is necessary in order to cultivate unity in a local congregation. Right attitude is followed by right action. Okay, so right attitude is humility and gentleness followed by right action. And the right action that Paul speaks of here first is patience. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. Patience. Makrothrumia. Makrothrumia in the Greek, the word translated patience. I tell you that because it's important to understand patience. Okay, so what is patience? What is patience? Patience. Well, the word itself is a, is a compound word. It comes from makros, which means long, and thumos, which means passion or anger. So patience is, is a long anger or long passion. And the idea is the opposite of being short-tempered. Okay, So the, the opposite, to be patient, is to, is to have a long fuse. How's that? And to be impatient is to be uh, short-tempered, short-fused, to resort to anger quickly. We see uh, this essential virtue, a glimpse of it, in God himself. It is the character of God. God is patient. Exodus 34, verse 6, God reveals his name to Moses and... uh, In the process of doing that, he refers to himself as makrothumas, that is, slow to anger. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, in other words, patient, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God is slow to anger. God has a long fuse. He has a long fuse. And so we, as the children of God, are to have long fuses as well. Patience, again, is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a fruit of the outworking of the Spirit as we are conformed to Christ. Just think with me for a minute. Think about Jesus. How many many times in the New Testament do we see him angry? I mean, there are a few, right, to be sure. I mean, there's the the whole Matthew 23, right, where he absolutely lets the Pharisees have it. But but when you think about Jesus, I mean, all the waste, all all of the the hard-heartedness, all of the sin that he observed and, and, and uh, knew that he personally was going to carry the weight of, and yet he was incredibly patient with people, right? How did he respond to the woman at the well? How did he respond to the woman caught in adultery? How has he responded to you? How did he respond to me? He personifies patience, right? In fact, he criticizes uh, James and John when they want to do what? They want to incinerate the Samaritans on the, on the spot for their refusal to receive Christ, right? And he says, you don't know what spirit you're of, right? And he calls them sons of thunder. That's not a compliment. Okay? That's not a compliment. So patience is a fruit of the spirit, is the outworking of the spirit. And it's seen in the, in the making allowance for other people's shortcomings. When wronged, a patient person does not seek revenge. But without... Without complaining, he bears the irritation, bears the faults and the injuries of others rather than flying into a rage and seeking vengeance. Closely related here to to patience is the Christian virtue of loving tolerance, right? With patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, this tolerance is not of sin, but of people. Okay, so we don't tolerate sin, but we tolerate sinful people. Showing tolerance to one another. This word tolerance, it, it carries the idea of bearing or enduring with respect to things or persons. She was over in Colossians 3.13, where Paul speaks there and he says, uh, he asks them to tolerate or bear with those who are in the assembly. So we are to bear with one another. The verb here always appears in the middle voice, and, and that means that we're involved in the action of the verb, and it simply means this. We're to hold ourselves back from each other. It'd be a good way to think about tolerance. In love, I am to hold myself back from you. In love, you are to hold yourself back from me and to hold ourselves back from each other. Hold ourselves back from what? From strangling the other person, right? I mean, just you know, from popping it and going after him. We're to hold ourselves back from that kind of display of anger, that kind of outburst. So we're to tolerate one another's differences, patiently endure one another's uh, foibles and one another's provocations. And how do we do that? Right? Are we supposed to just simply grin and bear it and pretend that, you know, it doesn't really bother me, meanwhile, on the inside, I'm all burning up? No, Paul says, look at it again, showing tolerance for one another. How? In love. In love, by love, with love, preposition can be translated. In other words, we're to hold ourselves back from those actions and attitudes that, that cause disunity because of love. Whose love? God's love. God's love expressed in the gospel that has been poured forth into our heart. We love God because he first loved us and we love one another because we are made in his image and remade in Christ. And so love covers over another person's foibles. Right attitudes, right actions. Third, rigorous effort. Rigorous effort. Right, the final means that you and I have to, to cultivate unity is by exerting ourselves in the pursuit of it. Local churches, uh, the unity in a local church just doesn't happen on its own. Okay, It requires self-sacrifice and hard work. It requires hard work. Every relationship takes effort, and the closer the relationship, the more effort it takes. Okay, If you're married, you can say amen. Okay, The closer the relationship, the more the effort. Why? Because yeah, we bug each other. We do it in a marriage, we do it within a community of believers, we do it in a family. I mean, it's just, you know, we're kind of people that bug each other. So we've got to work at it. That's the point, we've got to work at it. You can't coast. We can't coast here at Foothill. If we coast and do not work hard at unity, we will find that it slips through our fingers. Okay? We need to really, really work at it. That's the way it is in a marriage. If you don't work at the unity of your marriage. You'll find that it is that there are all kinds of walls and barriers and that uh, your spouse is bugging you for things that are ridiculously small and unnecessarily to, to be provoked about, but they still provoke you. And, honey, I'm sorry. And just generally sorry. Yeah. We're good, right? Yeah, we're good. I, I just thought came into my mind. You know, maybe I should. No, but we're good. I think we're good. Um, but you know, I do bugger, not once a month or something, but you know, (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. Um, in the church, we provoke each other and we got to work at it. We got to work really hard at it. Notice what Paul says here, verse three, being diligent, just stop there being diligent this word diligent or diligence, or, you know, we kind of lost it a little bit in our language. We don't talk about, you know, hey, let's, you know, be diligent at work or whatever. It means, to, it means to work hard. That's what it means. It means to be work hard. It means to be busy. It means to be eager. It means to make haste. One who is diligent is, is about the task and they're working hard at the task. They're focused. They spare no effort. And so that's what we're to be. We are to be sparing no effort. We're to be eager to be working hard to do what? To preserve the unity of the Spirit. In other words, to keep or to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Something that's already in existence. This case, the unity, right, produced by the Spirit making us one here in a local body. In other words, I got to work hard at this and you got to work hard at this. And if we coast as a congregation we will find all kinds of things that sever our unity together and soil our testimony for Christ. Paul says this, this working hard, this diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit, notice finally he says, in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. He uses what's called here an an appositional genitive, and it just means the bond which is peace. Peace be translated that way in the bond, which is peace. Peace is the glue. Peace is the, is the bond that holds it all together. And peace is the fruit of the gospel, right? Paul says in Romans chapter five, having been justified by faith, verse one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is a first fruit of the gospel, and it is peace vertically, and it is peace horizontally, and it is peace that is the glue that holds together a local congregation. So, as we close it up here, let's just think about some practical ways to work hard. Let's not just leave it with the exhortation, you've got to work hard, you've got to be diligent. question is, how do we work hard? What kind of effort preserves... The unity of a local church. I've got a few suggestions for you. This is not exhaustive by any stretch. But here are a few things. First, commit yourself personally to regularly praying for the unity of this church. Just make it part of of your habitual practice of private prayer is to pray for the unity of this congregation. Value it. Consider it important. Important enough that it will press out, if you're limited in prayer time, it will push out other things and it will take its proper place. Pray, uh, you know, that that people will overlook the hurts. Pray that people will overlook the offenses, the, the slights, the oversights, the things that can get in there and get under your skin and create disunity. So pray for each other, right, that we will overlook all of this stuff. And pray for yourself that you will not be a cause of it for other people. So pray to overlook. Pray that God will help me to overlook. Pray that God will help you to overlook my foibles. And pray that I don't irritate you. Okay? It's amazing, by the way, if you start praying that way, how you begin to be a little more introspective and you begin to see some ways that you actually might be irritating a lot of people. So It's a bold prayer, but it's an important prayer. So pray. That's first. Second, discipline your mind to remember the gospel and the ugliness of the sin from which you have been delivered. In other words, preach the gospel to yourself. Remember the gospel. And remember that you have been delivered. And as Jesus says, he who has been forgiven much, forgives much. He who has been forgiven little, forgives little. As we focus on the gospel, as we remember and do the hard work of remembering from what we have been delivered, all of a sudden we find ourselves much more gracious and forgiving with everybody else. So do do the hard work of disciplining yourself with the gospel. quote here from C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, which is always fun. He says, and I quote, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you are. <laughs> if he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction." If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be still nearer the truth. <laughs> you gotta love that guy, right? He had such a way. Must have been really secure in his pulpit, too. You know how to say those kind of things to people? Good old Spurgeon. So so be big hearted. In forgiveness, because God has forgiven you much, much. Third, do not be quick to assert your rights. Do not be quick to assert your rights, but, but rather seek to serve rather than be served. We're all about our rights, right? I got my right. I know my rights. Yeah, they start at like two years old. Two years old, they look up at you. I know my rights. You got no rights. You're only two years old. But we're kind of like the same thing. We're always, you know, asserting our rights. And how about if we seek to to serve other people? Four. Make every effort to reconcile damaged relationships before they damage the health and unity of this local body. This is a big one. Make every effort to reconcile damaged relationships before they spill over onto the rest of us. Okay, beloved, we don't sin by ourselves. Christ has placed us in a a body in unity together. What that means is that it is inescapable that my sin affects you and your sin affects me. And so when there is a relationship that is damaged because of sin and we refuse to reconcile it, it's not just between me and the other person who I won't talk to or I look the other way or I sit on the other side of the congregation or I avoid him or whatever it is. That spills over onto everybody else. And it is hard work to reconcile. It is very, very hard work. And, and, it, and it, I know the temptation. It's, it's, it seems much easier to just wall it off. Right? Hey, there's 550 people here, I'm just going to wall off one. But if that's the approach, it's not just one. That kind of approach will start to wall off everybody. It's very unhealthy. So make every effort necessary to reconcile a damaged relationship. Fifth and finally, please do not take communion if you know you're out of fellowship with someone else here in the body. That's Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. Don't do it. We celebrate communion monthly, first Sunday of the month. You know it's coming. What that means is is, is that you know you have advance warning for next week. If there's if there's someone or some situation that needs to be addressed. Do it. You have time. Humble your heart in gentleness, showing tolerance and love. Go to that person and be reconciled. And then come next week when we take of the Lord's table together and participate with a clean and free conscience. These are some very practical ways to express our rigorous effort. Rigorous effort in preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond which is peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us one in Christ. What a powerful display of of the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, how we confess that we are not by nature peaceful people. We confess that by nature, that old nature, that nature that we inherited from Adam, that we seek our own and we are quick to grow angry with those who get in our way. We confess that that old Adamic nature does not express patience is not gentle is not tolerant or long suffering but is self-focused that uses people that sees the world through the bias of our own desires wants but father we've been made new in Christ the sin no longer rules over us the, the paul is clear in this that that we have been severed from the old life and been united to Christ in the new. Everything has changed. So even here in these, these exhortations of, of Paul, beginning in chapter 4 here, in this one about unity that we're, we're focusing on, Father, it is all a fruit and a result of the gospel. It is not, it is not that we just suck it up and, and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and pretend, but, Father, we have been made new And so he's calling upon us to believe that reality and then act in accordance with it. Oh, Lord, may you help us to value the unity of this church like you do. May you help us, Father, to be diligent, to work hard, to preserve it. Oh, Lord, there are so many things that can, can disrupt it and sever it. And, Father, they begin with me. With us. We don't need to look outside. We need to look inside. The Lord, may you change us. May you continue to, to smile upon this local fellowship. That we might grow in unity together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.